Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. Well, we are uh, going to jump into the scriptures and continue our study of 1 Peter. So if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 21. since moving uh, to Colombia, there's one thing that I haven't missed, but uh, that I don't do as often as we used to do in Chicago, and that is traffic jams. Traffic jams are a nuisance, and uh, I remember it took me so long to figure out when to go places in Chicago, because it wasn't uncommon to get stuck just sitting for hours. I, re- I remember specifically trying to count all the lanes of traffic that were just sitting like a parking lot coming out of Chicago that I was stuck in. It was like six lanes, five lanes, just sitting there. And I look over at the other side going into Chicago and exactly the same thing is happening on the other side. And so there's 10 lanes of traffic. It's just incredible. And I got stuck in that traffic over and over, and there's, there's actually a, kind of a, an oppression that is lifted when you get out of the traffic in Chicago. Um, but then you still get stuck in traffic jams around here. I got stuck on I-70 and stuff like that, but uh, it, it's certainly greatly reduced, and for that I am so thankful. Well, as you might have heard this last week or so, In the news, there has been a traffic jam of another kind, and and this has possibly contributed to some serious consequences and even loss of life. It is the traffic jam on Mount Everest, and you probably saw that, heard that, and I got a picture. That's a traffic jam that I don't want to be in. You can see all the the people lined up. And one of the concerning things about this traffic jam is that uh, about 10 to 12, it's a little debated, 10 to 12 people have lost their lives trying to make it to the summit. And this section of Mount Everest is called the death zone because the altitude's so high, the air is so thin, the wind is so fierce, and that the weather is conducive to getting to the top only for a short period of time in May, it seems like. And so when the weather's good and you can make that trek to the top and see a lot of stuff, everybody rushes at the same time. And it's kind of a a treacherous thing. Um, The tourism director of Nepal said that this recent overcrowding was not only not the only problem contributing to the deaths that have happened, but also the large number of people who are not as familiar uh, with mountain climbing and the preparation and safety measures, and it's a very difficult road. And so uh, this year... They've given 381 permits to climb the mountain. And uh, as we can see, it's treacherous. 
One of the things that's interesting about this story is that in large part when we think about the Christian life, I think of it something like that. It's a summit. It is a summit, a top of the mountain, that is spectacular. Something like you'll never take in in your lifetime. The Christian life is a promise that all that God intended for human beings in the creation of the world, in his gifts of grace and life to his people that was thwarted because of sin, all of the promises of that life will be brought to us as believers in Jesus. Because Jesus has established a way of access to God by his life, his sinless life, and by the offering of this life in his death, and by resurrecting and defeating the power of death and sin. And if we believe in him, we will receive life. We will hit the high point of life when Jesus breaks through the sky and comes back with his kingdom it will be in a glorious and eternal kingdom and he will reign and his people who have trusted in him and found life in him will be part of that kingdom that is a profound and marvelous story that is most important in our world and as peter is talking about this story this reality He is talking to believers, Gentiles predominantly, not Jewish, but Gentiles, who are really not part of that story until Jesus comes. And then those Gentiles are included in that story, and the people of God, Jews and Gentiles who find life in Christ, are on their way to this glorious place. And Peter is writing to these first century Christians, Because we're not there yet. We haven't arrived at the top of the summit. We're still anticipating and looking forward to it. And while we're going there, we encounter troubles and trials of various kinds. And we wonder about the reality of faith and where this world is going and where is our place in it. And how are we honoring Christ and living for Christ in the world. And Peter's writing because he's concerned that these believers are struggling with their faith. Struggling with their, their life of obedience to Christ. And that's one of the reasons Peter is so encouraging and helpful to us. As you remember from the last couple of weeks... We've been looking at chapter 1, verses 3 through, through 12, really talk about the whole experience of being changed, being converted, trusting in Christ, and the riches of God's love and grace extended to us, giving us an inheritance that will never fade and never diminish. It will last forever, being born anew because we believe in Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit and guidance and life and all of these things are described to us. And one of the two markers in that passage is joy, rejoicing, 
Because we have received life. We have been translated out of the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. And that kingdom one day is coming and will reign for eternity and we are part of it. And as we're traveling through this world, we have to remember who we are, what God has done in our lives. And if you've never trusted in Christ... You should hear the invitation to come and receive life in Jesus. There's nothing more important than that. And so Peter's writing to encourage them. And we've looked at these great expressions and truths of this great salvation. But in chapter 1, verse 13, where we're picking up, verse 13 starts with, therefore. Verse 13 is referring to what has been said. And he says, Therefore, given all of what I've described here for you already, here is what I want to tell you. And what we have here is kind of the, the regular transition in the New Testament letters. Paul does this all the time. He spends the first portion of his letters giving theology and explanation of what God is doing and the unfolding plan and purpose of God and how glorious it is. And then moves to... Okay, what does that mean for you? How should you respond? How should I respond? How should we live as Christians in anticipation of all that God is doing? Well, Peter's making that transition here in verse 13. And we're going to be looking at this passage. And I'm looking, we're looking, and we're going to notice that there are three imperatives in these verses, 13 through 21. I'm really going to just camp on those three imperatives. Imperatives are those words of command, instruction, call for action, for something for us to do. And Peter is giving us that call of instruction in light of the grace of God that has been given to us already. And this will help us as we go through this life, as we travel. And remember, Peter talks about us being exiles from a foreign land, pilgrims from another place, and sojourners. We're living in this land, scattered amongst this land, anticipating the day that will finally come. And so Peter is going to be giving us instruction as to how to manage each and every day. And I hope that we'll hear these things. So let's read verses 13 through 21 in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect he was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake 
Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, we pray that you will open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to your word and your truth. That we might live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look at this, there's three imperatives. There's quite a few participles describing and complementing and expanding on the imperatives. Is kind of how they function. But I would like to camp on the three imperatives. So first, first point is set your hope on the grace received at the revelation of Jesus. This is in verse 13. Set your hope on the grace. So, therefore, with minds that are are, are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you. The imperative is set your hope. And I've kind of called it focus your hope on the grace that is coming. That is the coming kingdom of Christ. The hope of future life in Christ, in his kingdom, where he reigns. Now, I've qualified hope because we don't think of hope quite as in the way the Bible thinks of hope. You know, I I think like set your hope, focus on hope. It's kind of like be hopeful, fully hoping in is kind of the biblical language. But for us, hope is kind of... It's kind of wishful. I hope, uh, I hope the Green Bay Packers make a showing this year or something, you know. Uh, I hope the Patriots don't win or something like that, and, which all, all of that's true. But hope is so elastic, you know. It doesn't really mean much. Uh, but when we look at it in the Scriptures, hope is foundational. It is what we stand on. And it really is telling us, Peter is saying that as we travel through this world and as we face all of the encounters and and manage all the requirements and demands of life and as we try to, to manage our kids and manage our homes, manage our jobs, we are to primarily set our hope on the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that hope should shape how we're living each and every day. It should be the most profound, the most important thing in our life. And I wonder if that is the case. I think of it kind of like, I, I'm, I hesitate to mention all this, but my, my daughter lived in California and we would go out there and the cheapest way to go out there was to fly into LA, uh, to Las Vegas. So we fly into Las Vegas because you get a cheap flight and a cheap car. But where do you stay? So we stay in the casino. Sorry. And I, I don't know much about casinos, but it was kind of fascinating to go down into the casino. And, and they have the, the roulette table, I think it is. And you put your, your coins on the numbers. And they were telling me how to do it. You know, I, I never played. I didn't play. No, I played one game. Uh, they... Uh, and they say, you know, spread your coins out. So then you, you might lose this one, lose this one, lose this one. But you win this one and you get more than you got all over it. Okay. Well, that's not what Peter's talking about. Peter's not talking about let's, let's play our life, our cards right, and make sure, you know, our jobs are good and our houses are good and our finances are good. And, and yeah, we have the Christian thing. We make sure we go to church every week or something. That's not what it is. 
Peter's talking about set your hope. If we are going to really be believers who follow Christ and honor him and realize that the kingdom of Christ that is coming is going to be a summit. It is going to be a summit that is bigger and better and more important than any summit we will ever experience in our lives and that we should orientate our lives towards that event. That means I'm going to put all of my chips of my life, everything, that means how I live my life, how I buy my houses, that's the job I'm going to live in, that's like the schooling I'm going to do, the retirement, everything is going to funnel through the reality that the most important thing in my life is the day that Christ comes and the grace of God is revealed. And I'm setting my life and my hope on that. And therefore, everything I do in all of my relationships and all of my business dealings, everything I do is going to be funneled through the, the expectation that that day is coming. And that's the most important day in my life. Therefore, I'm planning for it. I'm, I'm arranging, I'm thinking about it. And let me just take you to the text here because here, here is the command. Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you. That's the imperative. The participles help us understand how we do that. And therefore, in verse 34 and 13, it says, Therefore, with minds that are alert. How do we set our hope on this day? On this grace? You live with minds that are alert. That means minds that are focused on the truth of the revelation of Jesus. That means that you gird up your minds. That's really the the translation of the King James Version. It's gird up your minds. And you know, with that that kind of gird up the loins of your mind, that's an old, old picture like when they used to wear robes and and they were going to run or they were going to work hard. They would take the robes and pick it up and tie it around their waist. Then they're ready to get to work. They're ready to run. And in the same way, if we're going to set, uh, uh, set our hope on the grace that's going to be revealed when Jesus returns, we have to have minds that are alert. That means looking at everything and every opportunity with the anticipation of looking forward to that day. Running everything through the grid of that day. Because that's the most important day. And we have to do that in our mental thought processes. That means we have to want to learn about God. We have to look into God's word. We have to want to think the thoughts of God. We want to be like God. That's how we set our hope on that day. So with minds alert... That means going to work. That means thinking about it. It it kind of takes us back to uh, Exodus chapter 12 verse 11 when, when God tells the Israelites to celebrate a Passover meal. And they're in the, they're in the wilderness. They're ready to leave Egypt. They're going to go to the promised land and, and God says celebrate a Passover meal. And when you do, prepare yourself. Get your traveling clothes on. Make ready for a long and arduous trip to the promised land. And in the same way as we think about traveling to the summit where Jesus will come one day and 
establish his kingdom and the greatest things for God's people will come to full fruition that we anticipate and make preparations and work towards that goal, setting our hope on those things. So with minds that are alert, but then he goes on, and fully sober. This is the second thing. We should be fully sober. We are called through this phrase to be self-controlled, to be engaged. This, again, is talking about that work, that effort. Peter uses this kind of language over and over. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, he says, The end of all things is near, therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. This call to be alert, be fully sober. Now, I, I think when we think of sober, uh, for me, you know, I think of intoxication. You know, don't drink, don't do drugs. I think there's something to that here. We don't. What happens when you drink and when you do drugs? You get a foggy mind. You don't think very clearly. You don't react very clearly. And what you need is complete focus as a follower of Jesus so that you can see temptations, you can see evil, you can see what's wicked, you can make discerning decisions so that you are a disciple of Christ. Of course, this doesn't just mean about drinking and drugs. It has the broader thing of being alert to spiritual truths. And that is seeing temptation and seeing those things, being able to understand. I think of Paul when he, in chapter 17 of Acts, went to Athens. You remember when he went to Athens and he walked around the city and there were all these idols and, and carvings and sculptures to foreign gods? Well, certainly you could think, wow, that's a beautiful place. Look at all the, the wonderful artwork. But Paul didn't go in there like that. Because he was alert in his mind and fully sober. He was able to see the spiritual problems of that place. And I, I, my, uh, my daughter and her husband uh, went to Japan for their uh, wedding anniversary. And I remember sending her a couple of podcasts just trying to... to Kind of give them an awareness of the spiritual battles and dimensions that are going on in Japan. And not just to go and look around the city and see all the lights and all the glamour and all the, the organization, the cleanness and the Pokemons or whatever they like. <laughs> but to notice the spiritual plight. And that's what we need to do in our everyday situation. If we're going to live as people who are hoping in the, the coming of Jesus, the revelation of the grace of Jesus, we're going to be aware of the real deep spiritual issues that happen in our homes, in our families, in our neighborhoods, on the workplace, at the workplace. We're going to be aware of those things. We're going to be focused on those things. And that will cause our hope for the day of Jesus coming to grow. So that's the first imperative. 
set your hope on the grace that is going to be revealed when Jesus Christ is revealed or when he comes. Second, conduct your life in holiness because we are called to be holy. Because we are called by a holy God, excuse me. And we see this in verse 14 through 16. It says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. There's the imperative. So be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now, holiness is not some kind of cloistered, being cloistered away and locked up in a monastery or anything like that. But it is about living in the real world, in the present world, and being one in the midst of that present world, displaying the holiness of God. Focusing on being God's people that show forth His grace and His love and His truth, and what life really is. Notice that it says in the beginning of the verse, as obedient children. Because this is the, one of the uh, statements that qualify that uh, be holy. As obedient children kind of thinks about that whole relationship we have with our Heavenly Father. It is the first century, certainly. It is picked up with, with a father caring for the family, providing for the family and the children, respecting and loving and honoring the father, and that's the best situation. Therefore, this obedience acknowledges that there is a new relationship that we are brought into because of Jesus. We are made his children. We are part of his family. And as part of his family, we are to reflect our heavenly father. And there is a negative side to this. These children, these Gentiles, were encouraged to walk away from their former ways of life, saying that they are not going to be molded by those ideas or those principles, those sinful desires. The first readers were raised in a in a pagan culture where there were foreign gods but they had to drop all those things and understand the revelation of God that we experience and know through Jesus Christ and then to follow him in the same way we have a lot of ideas about God that are not representative of the scriptures and we always need to be pursuing and understanding and knowing God more so that we can reflect him in our lives. And one of the ways we do that is by being holy because God is holy. When we think about holiness, no matter how hard it is to grasp that word, the negative side was don't act like you lived in your former life. The positive side is to obey God in reference to who God is, what he is like. And it sums, uh, summed up in ideas like otherness. God is great and separate and distinct. But he is pure. He is truthful. He is sincere. Righteousness. And he is in opposition to evil. To say that God is holy means that he is separated from sin. And devoted to seeking his own glory and honor. 
as he rightfully can do. As the creator God, as the triune God of the universe. Therefore, things that were holy in the Old Testament were both those that were set apart, that were ordinary things, and also they were things that were used in, uh, that were not to be used as evil things. So those things that were holy in the Old Testament were devoted to God and devoted to His glory. And in the same way, Peter is telling us we are the people of God and that we have been called into this relationship with God as our Father and therefore we are set apart to God to represent that holiness, that purity that is seen in God. Even when Peter quotes this verse from Leviticus 11.44, it has reference to God's people should be of the character of God. And they should be representing that in the world. So, we've heard the imperative to be focused on hope, to live lives of holiness. That's what's in this text. And then the last imperative is found in verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. So, in this passage is an imperative that we might be surprised at. It's an imperative that we don't normally talk about. It's an imperative that I think in some ways in our preaching of the gospel we have discarded it or undermined it. But the imperative is at the end of verse 17 live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Now the NIV kind of helps us to work with this word fear but actually the word fear is just fear. And as we think about that, we might think, well, this seems incompatible with what we understand about the gospel. But Peter is very comfortable talking about us calling out to our Father, recognizing that we have been brought into a gracious relationship with God, and that we have a hope when he comes, when Jesus comes again, and we'll be participants as God's people, and setting that right alongside this command to live here with fear. Now, how do we understand that? Part of it is the ad, uh, the the previous part of verse 17 since we call on a father who judges each person's work impartially this helps us understand a little bit about this fear just because we are saved just because we have believed in Jesus we cannot expect God to say, well, now my, my standards of judgment have been radically changed because of you all, or me. No, God still judges. He is right. He is just. He is pure. He is holy. 
And we as Christians believe that God has been gracious to us and brought us into a relationship with this God. But that relationship hasn't changed God. He is still righteous and he is holy. And so the God that you have to do with and the God that I have to do with is pure, holy, and righteous. And he judges impartially. When I think about this, I think about the verse of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, that speaks about the Word of God, which says, For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. As the word of God is able to do that to us. We believe that it can speak to the very depths of our heart. We certainly in the same way believe God sees the depths of our heart. And I think if we would pause and think about this. You know it's a, it's a weighty concept. It's one that we pass over too quickly. Matter of fact I've, I've heard too many Christians and it, it irks me. I don't know a better word. I get very angry about it, actually. Uh, that Christians can come in and tell me that they're going to continue on in this uh, adulterous relationship, even though I'm married to somebody else. I, I, you know, I just feel like this is so important, and God loves me so much, and His grace is so real that He wants me to have life, and therefore, I'm sure He's going to overlook all this stuff. You know why we're presumptive of God? Why we presume on God's grace too many times? Because we don't listen to this verse. We don't hear about who God is. We think because God's the one sitting behind the judgment seat. When we get taken into court and we meet him, well, he's just going to overlook stuff. Because we're, we're part of his family. But God is not lowering his standards for us. We are brought into his world. He is not brought into our world. He has given us grace and cleaned us up and and set us right in the sacrifice of Jesus so that we can be with him. And he still judges impartially. And therefore, this is a weighty thing. The God of the universe whom we follow. We have been brought into a relationship that should dramatically change who we are in every area of our life right down to the very intentions of our heart in the deepest recesses of our heart because God sees it all. And so this is not to be a condemnation. This is to be an exhortation and a hopeful word of encouragement that put your hope in the revelation of Jesus Christ when the grace will be revealed. Seek holiness because we have a holy God and do it with recognition of how great God is. Our problem is is we think we can manage God. That we can trick Him or whatever. We can do our own thing and, you know, we we give him a little tip of the hat or whatever, then that's enough. That's not the kind of relationship we're called into. And Peter's concerned that if you think, if we think, if I think that that's the kind of relationship that we're called into, when we have trials of various kinds and there's persecutions and there's hard days, we're going to lose sight of the hope of the glory that he's given us. 
We're going to lose our connection with Jesus because we haven't been serious about being holy because God is holy. And we've forgotten that he judges impartially. And therefore, this is the most significant relationship. We say, I say, that Jesus appearing on the day that we receive that grace when he comes is the biggest summit you'll ever have in your life. Well, in the same way, right now, what you are experiencing in your walk with God is the most important thing that's happening in your life. It's not your job. It's not your possessions. not your bank account. It's not any of that stuff. The most important thing in your life is this walk with God. And are you realizing who he is? And how we respond to him. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm just saying, well, we've got to be fearful and we've got to work hard and hopefully God will accept us. I'm not talking about that because even Peter makes that kind of uh, uh, correction to that interpretation. Look at verses 18 through 21. What does he talk about? Peter's saying we're brought into this relationship with God where we should fear because God is great. But look at what he's done. For you know that he has purchased us with things that are imperishable. With the blood of Jesus. The, the, the pure lamb of God. He has established us. He has made us his people. And before the foundation of the world. God had planned to send his son to be our savior. So it's not, we're not talking about fear here. But we are talking about a holy relationship. A holy relationship that should transform our lives completely. And nothing is more important than it. So if I were to give you an illustration of how we might be fearful. Let me give you this illustration. Let's say that there's a girl who's in high school. She's just about to graduate. And she gets kidnapped. It's a rough story, but it's a hypothetical story, though there are some similarities to real-life stories. And she gets kidnapped, and these uh, kidnappers want a ransom. And they contact the father, and the normal story is don't contact any police, and they con- and the, don't uh, bring FBI in or anything, and, and we want a ransom. And the father and the mother realize that this ransom is gigantic, and so they start to look at everything they have, and they realize that, they're going to have to sell their house. They're going to, have to sell their cars. They're going to have to empty their retirement accounts. They're going to empty their savings accounts. They're going to put every ounce of money that they can gather together to meet that ransom. And then, as it would happen, the details are worked out. There's a drop spot, and the father takes the ransom to the drop spot, and the, the daughter is held by the captors, and the, daughter's, the daughter walks out and picks up the ransom. And then she gives her dad an obscene gesture and puts her arm around the captor and walks off. It's a terrible story. It's a story of of, uh, shame. It's a story of pain. It's a story of disregard. It's a story of, of stepping on all that the parents have done in 
risking everything that they have to buy the safety of their daughter. Well, if you think about your life and my life as believers, and we think about what Jesus has done, what God has given to us in His Son, so that we might be His people, that we might be forgiven, and given a hope for eternal life, and then we do something to despise that gift, to reject that gift, to diminish that gift, to disregard that gift. Oh, I think we'd be fearful of doing such a thing as that. And we as people have been brought into the most wonderful relationship with God our Creator and He has done everything He can to bring us to Himself. The call for us is to set our hope on the coming of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. To live holy lives because He is holy and He is our Father. And to live with fear. Fear that we would do anything that would reject or despise or diminish the grace that He's given us. When we live in that place, we will bring honor to God. We will be able to face the trials and tribulations of life. We will find life to the fullest. And that's the challenge for us in this time. I love that little phrase in verse 17. It says, live out your time as foreigners in fear. Live out your time. Live out your days. Live out your life here in this place as foreigners. Knowing our home is somewhere else. In fear, the greatness of God's grace to us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are good and gracious. Lord, we thank you that you have given us a a glorious gift in the salvation of Jesus Christ. And that nothing can take that away from us. It will not fade. It will not diminish. It will not be tarnished. Lord, may we never... Never despise it, diminish it. May we always magnify the wonder of your grace. May we set our hope on the coming of Jesus and the grace that we will receive on that day. May we be holy people in this world. May we be reverent and fearful that you are a glorious God. You are so good to us. In Jesus' name, amen.